This episode is called Start With The Beast. I loved talking to Karen Ball about her 25-year career as a children's editor. She understands more about the process of creating great children's fiction than anyone I know. I learned so much from this discussion. Karen spills the beans about how to hook reluctant readers, why she likes to work with unpublished writers, or rather pre-published writers, and why voice is the most important thing. Karen's also an authority on dressmaking, which was the topic of my first trilogy, Threads. She's eloquent on why it's important to have other outlets for your creative energy as well as writing. We recorded this conversation in November 2019. Links to the resources we mention are listed in the show notes, so do look them up if you want to find out more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm here this evening with Karen Ball, and I am delighted and honoured that she has agreed to chat to me for the podcast. So, Karen, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here too. (laughs) Karen has had the most extraordinary publishing career, and we will most certainly be talking about her involvement with the Beast Quest series. Um, I'm particularly excited to talk to her today, though, because of something else. Her website, didyoumakethat.com, um, and the Little Book of Sewing that came out earlier this year. And Karen really has, has brought together um, my passions of sewing and making things and children's literature. And anyone who's read the Thread series will know that that, uh, that all means a lot to me. So um, hopefully we'll get a chance to chat about that too. But before we start, Karen, you've had a really varied career in children's publishing. So would you like to briefly describe how you got into it and what you've done? Yes. Um, so I've been working in publishing for over 25 years now, which according to the bookseller makes me an industry veteran, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is code for old person. <laughs> I saw that you were also a 2017 rising star. Yes. But I was thinking, your star rose ages ago. <laughs> it's been up there for a long time. Oh, thank you. So, um, so yeah, not an untypical uh, journey into publishing. I did an English degree, loved books and literature and wanted to carry on working with them. Um, and finally got my first editorial job that just happened to be in children's publishing. And I still think is one of the, the greatest strokes of luck because I quickly learned what an amazing part of the industry this is. And, and it, you know, it remains such a lovely part of the industry, like great people work in children's publishing we're working on books that fundamentally change lives it's just so satisfying um and so yeah I had an editorial career for a number of years and then became that led to becoming head of editorial at working partners where one of the first projects I was invited to brainstorm was Beast Quest um and then I was publisher at Little Brown Books for Young Readers for three years um helping set up a new children's imprint there and then um, I left to set up my own consultancy called Speckled Pen, um, and that's been going for three years now. So tell me a little bit more about Beast Quest. Um, I am the mother of uh, four children, and they have all read many of the series, my boys particularly. Um, I gather it's sold 11 million and counting. Yeah. Is that in many languages, by the way? Yes, I mean, I, I don't know you know the exact number of territories it's sold in but it's 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 a worldwide success and if you go to Bologna or Frankfurt book fair you will see Beast Quest posters on multiple um European and American stands so yes it's 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 become a big worldwide success and what was the idea behind it when working partners came up with it Yes. Um, so at the time, they definitely wanted to engage with um, boy readers and potentially reluctant readers. Um, so a lot of the thinking was to have um, what's called a high content level, but a lower reading level. So mm-hmm. lots of plot and adventure and, you know, really exciting content, but making sure that the, you know, the sentence structure, um, the vocabulary is pretty accessible really cliffhanger chapter endings to keep young readers turning the pages um opening the book with a immediately going into a scene with uh, with a beast to kind of really hook readers and um yeah just really trying to encourage um reluctant boy readers and it, it definitely succeeded in doing that um but yeah, I mean, it was it was it was huge fun to brainstorm. There was a lot of careful thought and planning went into the launch of the series, 
but you can never quite know that you're at the start of something that's going to end up selling 11 million copies. <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah, I really remember a, a phone call from um, Orchard, the publisher, saying, oh, we want Tom, the main character, to have a, a catchphrase. And our boss kind of called through to me and my fellow editor, James Noble, and, and said, oh, you know, we need a catchphrase. <laughs> and I sat at my desk and just like had a bit of a think and typed up a few things and sent over some suggestions, one of which was um, the catchphrase that ended up um, going into the book, which is, well, there's blood in my veins, I shall, um, whatever, whatever. <laughs> and of course, now this is repeated back so many times and you, and you could... You could just never have known that, you know, gosh, what is it now, 15 odd years later, that that would have become, you know, an, an important catchphrase to a lot of kids and probably now young adults. Oh, that's really thrilling. And how long did you kind of shepherd the series through its journey for? Me personally. Yeah. So I was in, I was involved in on that series for eight years yeah. from the first brainstorm through to... Um, by the time I left Working Partners, I was still actively commissioning and editing books in the series. And I think that's one of the really interesting... Like, I never got bored of working on those books because because it was a fantasy-based series. Mm. You were constantly inventing new worlds, new beasts, new kingdoms, new adventures. So there really wasn't opportunity to get bored or jaded um, at all, which, I, again, I think is kind of part of the ingredients of success. Um yeah, fantasy is good for long-running series. Um, I, I hate to shatter anyone's illusions about the the prolific author who's written so many books. Adam Blade. <laughs> good old Adam Blade. <laughs> but Adam Blade is actually a lot of people, isn't he? Adam Blade is a lot of people, yeah. Um, and, and I've heard you say that you, you needed to work with writers who, who enjoyed the process. Yes. Um, so just to give you a brief overview of, of, of what happens is that we will we would have a brainstorm in-house at Working Partners and write a storyline. And then a writer is commissioned to write a manuscript to that storyline. So um, it is quite, it's very structured. Mm. And I think that not all creatives enjoy working in that way. Some of them absolutely love it. Mm. Um, and I think the only way you find out whether or not you enjoy that process is by trying it. So I very recently had exactly that experience with an author who sent in some sample chapters for a project I was developing at Speckled Pen. Mm. And um, at the end, she realised that actually this just isn't for me. It's too prescriptive. Yeah. And, you know, that's absolutely fine. So, um, yeah, it works for some authors. It doesn't work for others. Um, I've had I had friends who've tried it and it hasn't worked for them because it wasn't Beast Quest series that they were they were thinking about but in their case for example the the outline would be 3,000 words mm. and they'd be asked to write the story in 6,000 mm. so they half of it was already just outlined yeah how does it work with Beast Quest pretty much the same I mean we all when I was still at working partners and and certainly when I'm developing projects at Speckled Pet we try not to write more than 50% of the length of the novel but even so yes for some authors that's going to be you know they might find that creatively stilting mm -hmm. um but some authors who are prolific or who or who are learning their craft might think yeah that's absolutely fine I'm happy to work to that model um I'm interested you talk about people uh, learning their craft because that is the sort of person I've got in mind listening to this now pre-published authors as you say I really like that <laughs> um are you happy were you then happy to work with pre-published authors absolutely really um, that's so interesting yes um and, and and still am when I'm developing projects now mm -hmm. um yes I think because there's the willingness to learn um, I think as an editor, I still find it incredibly satisfying when you can see an author blossoming. Mm -hmm. So I think with really great authors, you only have to tell them something once, like from an editorial perspective, and they very quickly learn that lesson. So you don't have to keep saying to somebody, you know, in various drafts, so, you know, show, not tell, or, you know, whatever yeah. whatever the rules of, of the story shape were developing. Um and, you know, the, the whole publishing industry survives and needs 
new creative talent. So for me, that's the really exciting part of editing. Well, somebody who, who teaches uh, aspiring writers, that's that's so reassuring that that is a potential way in. And I imagine um, that they would learn plotting extremely well because yeah. these books are so tightly and repetitively plotted, aren't they? That's the thing. So um, I don't know if you agree, but I think one of the hardest parts of being an author is plot. And yes. <laughs> I personally find it very tough. <laughs> I think if somebody else has done that part of the process for you, that can be hugely liberating because mm-hmm. you you can concentrate on voice, on characterization, on authenticity of dialogue. And every time you're reading one of these storylines and getting feedback, you are learning, you know, plot. So again, that's what's really satisfying is somebody can work to that model for a certain window of their career and then think actually I'm ready to move on and you know work on my own novel or you know I've learned so much from this and I now have an idea that I want to explore on my own so I think it's a really great way of learning your craft as an author and also because that process is so um, rigorous I think it makes for really great editors as well because we have to, you know, we are on that journey with the author. We have to be involved in helping to shape the manuscript. So it's not a case of just, you know, sending notes that say the middle act doesn't work. Can you fix yes. it? You you have to be on that fixing journey. Yeah. So what happens if, if an author says, I've got a better idea for how the plot should work at this point? Are they allowed to do that? Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm always happy to kind of have those conversations and consider alternatives Mm. um I think if it starts to veer wildly away from the storyline as as kind of set out that may prove to be problematic but it's I think it's always important to have those conversations because there could be a very good reason why the writer is saying actually I think this could be a better way into this scene um and some of and some of those Questions can only be answered in the writing, you know, yes, if it's on your own novel or Absolutely. in, you know, if you're working to a book packaging model, you you might think that you've got a story nailed and then you get to a certain chapter or a certain scene and it's and it's just not working. Mm-hmm. So it's it's important to have those conversations whilst trying to respect, you know, the process that you've engaged with. So interesting. I did a slightly similar thing when I wrote my eighth novel, Four Stripes. Mm -hmm. I was a bit burnt out after Mm. seven. I'd done a trilogy and then four standalones year after year. (laughs) My brain just wouldn't work anymore. So I ended up, um, I pitched for this, uh, this thing that Stripes were doing to write uh, a pre-Raphaelite YA book oh, wow. and and I won the pitch and it was a little bit different because it was an 80,000 word novel and it was mm. probably oh, less than a thousand words of outline mm. um, so I had a lot of freedom to do what mm. I wanted to do and then we wrote a sequel and that was largely me saying how about they did this mm. um, but it was very relaxing for me it was what I needed to do for that yes, year exactly actually. exactly that is that you know even if you are an author who has her own or his own novels going on, sometimes it can just be a nice piece of creativity where there's slightly less pressure on you as the sole creative mm. to come up with all the answers to the, yeah. to the story. <laughs> and I know that you like collaboration, don't you? I absolutely, I'm passionate about collaborative creativity because I think it's so empowering. I find it very egalitarian as the creative process. So when I'm having brainstorms, um, and sometimes I would have, so when I first started at Little Brown, I had a brainstorm where I invited everybody in the company to attend. And honestly, if I could have gone to the post room and gone to the woman working on reception and pulled them into the mm-hmm. brainstorm, I would have, because you never know where this spark of creativity is going to come from. Um, and some people you know, might seem very quiet characters and then you put them in a brainstorm and all these <laughs> ideas are flying around yeah. and you're like, wow, where did that come from? Um, and so, yeah, I just find collaborative creativity such a great process and it's 
But again, it's very rigorous because you can't hide from the bad ideas. So when you're working on your own novel and we've all had this (laughs) where you have a chapter that you know isn't working and you're just hiding your head in the sand and then you deliver it to your editor and she's like, yeah, that chapter's not working. And you're like, I knew that wasn't. But you you can't hide your head in the sand when you're brainstorming collaboratively because somebody at the table will say, that bit's not working, is it? And then everybody will be like, no, it's not working. This group you will tend to know. Yeah, so and so I guess in a way that speeds the process up because you're forced to confront these harsh realities of story shape. I've had this in a similar way. I suppose my, my latest book was The Bigger Picture, which which I wrote with Tate Publishing. And it was a non-fiction book. There was a team of five of us on it. I see there's uh, me, two editors, um, Holly and Amelia and Manjeet who was the illustrator and mm-hmm. then Margaret who was the production designer I didn't yeah. know that was a thing but my goodness she was essential wow. and we were such a strong team of five I never actually did manage to meet Margaret as is often yeah. the way it was all kind of email it was a very very tight deadline uh, it's a beautifully illustrated you know a 52 double page spread mm. is that right yes that's right um, we had to do it over a summer and we worked so hard but that the trust that we had mm. between us all was mm. fantastic yeah so we were constantly changing things for each other because you know mm. something that worked for somebody didn't work for some somebody else and I think it's one of the most fun experiences that I've yes. had putting it all together at the end Holly who was our proper editor Holly Tonks was um an absolute genius yeah. you know, dealing with us all yeah but um I highly recommend collaborative team working production and I'm surprised that I say this because I started out my career alone in my local library Mm. for year after year Mm. writing books Mm. you know entirely unaided and and I liked that for a time Mm. but now I'm given the chance to work with somebody else I do absolutely because it can be very solitary being a writer or an illustrator and I think if you do have opportunities to work with other people go for it yeah absolutely so you've you've answered my big question, I think, which is can unpublished authors submit to this sort of thing? And I'm I'm really glad to hear that they can. I'm interested to know how you feel about the publishing world at the moment, the children's publishing, mm. uh, in terms of. So here I am. I'm a pre-published author. I'd like mm-hmm. to move across into actually being published. Should I, as a children's writer, go down the e-publishing route? What do you think? No. <laughs> It's the very succinct answer. Yes, it just, I think the physical book is still and always will be so incredibly important with, with children. If, if you, you know, if you even look at babies in prams with their little, um, you know, bath books and then the physical communal process of reading a picture book with your own child and mm. then children learning what chapters are even. Is, if, I think if you can't see that, in ink on paper it's very difficult and there's nothing there to, to light up a child's imagination and also children love collecting the books on their bookshelf which you can't really do with ebooks so I yeah I always think and and honestly the, the sales of ebooks in the children's market is absolutely minimal so yeah, I would definitely say stick with print. <laughs> you have to commit to paper. And that means that a lot of the, the the new publishing routes aren't really available to you. So do you think you therefore have to find a traditional publisher and an agent and go down that, that classic route? Or, I mean, how do you feel about Unbound and, and these other sort of routes mm. that people are now finding for producing their own work? Um, I think the Unbound model, so far they haven't, that I've seen had any significant success with children's um, books. And my impression is that that model works best. Um, so for anybody who doesn't understand what Unbound is, it's it's a kind of, it's a crowdfunding process where you will um, video pitch your idea for a book um, that's already been selected by the publishing house Unbound. And then you have a period of time in which you can invite people to help you raise funds to get the book published. Um, but I think sometimes that's where it can get tricky for a children's publish, uh, children's author because mm. I think the most successful books that Unbound have published tend to have some something somebody of notoriety attached to the book or yes. somebody famous who can help plug yes. it. 
So you um, need your, your audience kind of already there. Exactly. In a way. Yeah. Or, or you've got a very established, you know, say social media platform. Yeah. Um, and also, I don't think that children are going on the internet looking for books that they can crowdfund. No. So, <laughs> so I think that gets tricky. So yeah, you're right that some of the opportunities around ebooks, self publishing, new models are not as accessible to um to children's authors who who want to get out there that being said traditional children's publishing is is having a really great time at the moment so and that does mean that um i think the quality of children's books is still very high um so i think if you can better have the patience to hone your craft and and continue down the traditional route with an with an agent and a traditional publisher I think the the payoff um, would be really satisfying. I agree with you. Um, I have a very um, straightforward question for you. Uh, and, you know, we, we haven't uh, practiced this, so I don't know what you're going to say. <laughs> but um, I have just got the rights back to lots of my early books. Mm. Um, and I would love to see them illustrated. They're between fifty and 70,000 words. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see them lightly illustrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd love to have some input into the the cover design and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think there is still an audience for them. I mean, this week, you know, people found it very hard to get hold of them. And I'd love to be able to say, look, here they yeah. are. How do you think I should go about doing that? So your strategy is to approach new publishers to see if they would like to by the right so do you want to publish them your well I don't know okay (laughs) I'm really like I don't know what to do I know that I can't e-publish because yeah what we've just said I mean I could but nobody would find them yeah so I need printed copies yeah and that's a whole ball game that I don't understand and I don't want to have you know a thousand copies in my shed because there's not room to store them so um does that mean I just have to start all over again with, with agents and publishers my my reservation with going down a self-published physical route, so you paying to get the book printed mm. and, yes, having boxes of books <laughs> in, in your garage is, you know, and commissioning um, cover designs, which can be hugely exciting for an author. I think anybody can do that. I think the challenge then becomes how do you get the world to know that those books exist and mm. that people want to buy them? Um, without the support of a publisher's publicity and marketing department. And I think that is one of the key areas of expertise that traditional publishing can still offer authors. I think also commissioning your own cover artwork can be a road full of plot holes because we are not trained art designers, we are not trained illustrators, and somebody will listen to your brief and fulfill your brief yeah but then you don't have the skill set to steer them and so I think again that can get quite tricky so if it was me (laughs) my first port of call would be to start looking at who might be interested in in a traditional publishing house um at looking at the rights and maybe repackaging um maybe trying to think a little bit laterally about who that publisher might be mm-hmm. um and then if you then then if somebody does you know buy the rights and wants to um, put the books back out there in terms of having input on covers and internal illustrations I would say a light touch is always a good idea <laughs> because um you know it takes publishers a long time to get to a cover that everybody has agreed on internally mm. um and although they're always you know they they obviously want their authors to like their book covers it's i know so this funny. is it's so funny yeah. as an author because it happens every time what yes. you get is we've all seen this and we really like it i think i think there's a, <laughs> no pressure but you have to like it exactly <laughs> and sometimes you'll see a key phrase which is for your reference and what that <laughs> phrase really means is we don't want any constructive feedback. I know. <laughs> I know, poor chicken has. When, when Threads first came out, they made the bitter, bitter mistake of showing me some of the early versions yeah. that they were thinking about. And I adored them. Yes. I loved them so much. And then, of course, every change that was made for whatever reason, yes. you know, I was thinking, oh, it's not quite like what I saw before. So I think they, they regretted Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And I think, I think this is one of 
the kind of the frustrations for authors sometimes is that the publishing industry as a whole can seem quite cloaked and guarded and that can be mm. frustrating but I think the more you can understand the reasons why that's happening and that's why podcasts like this are so brilliant is that at least you have context yeah. so when you're saying oh can I see a cover yet and there you know you kind of get some vague non-committal email and response at yeah. least you understand what's happening and why yeah. that's going on whereas I think in the past, sometimes it's been really frustrating for authors because they wouldn't have access to, you know, podcasts or blogs explaining things to them. And you just don't understand. And, you, you know, you're operating in a vacuum and that's yeah, that, frustrating. Yeah, that's a strange part mm. of it, definitely. Well, thank you for that advice. And okay. I, what to do. That's I hope wonderful. that helps. Right. So I think what we need to move on to is Speckled Pen. Yes. Current project. Um, it sounds amazing. So what sort of projects are you working on? What do you hope Speckled Pen can be? Is it already doing what you want it to do? Um, Speckled Pen is a publishing consultancy. That, so it's, it's just turned three years old. Mm-hmm. I am hugely proud of what I've achieved. But I also still feel as though I'm in the foothills of where my ambitions lie. Um, But to give you a practical insight into what this consultancy actually does. um, So I'm I'm from an editorial background. And um, so the work really breaks down into three main areas. One is working with publishers on their projects. Um, So that might be structural edits or writing manuscripts for hire Mm. or helping them storyline things. Um, The other main area is working directly with authors who may be getting ready to submit to agents or are Mm -hmm. self-publishing or even, you know, I've worked with several authors who are kind of well into their career but just wanting to explore new avenues. Um, And this could be children's authors or adult authors? Yes, yeah, yeah, I work with both children's, well, children's YA and and adults. And then the third area is developing um, speckled pen projects to submit to publishers. Um, And so that involves um, a lot of brainstorming and storylining and finding new authors, attending book fairs, um, having regular meetings with publishers. um, And... Um, yeah, that's that's really satisfying as well. So yeah, I'm very busy. I'm <laughs> I'm, sp- I'm spinning lots of plates, but actually, that's yeah. that's part of my new kind of this part this part of my career. I'm finding really satisfying because it's so varied. So if you tell me about a project. I gather um, Agent Zebra Investigates is that yes, I yes. So this is one of the first projects that we brainstormed at Speckled Pen, and it's publishing next year in February, um, twenty twenty, mm-hmm. um, and it's a middle grade cozy crime series with an author called Annabelle Sarme, um, and so she's a British Asian main character who um, has an aunt in Pakistan who's. Um, a renowned detective mm. and so Zaber is very inspired by her aunt and sets out to solve her own crimes and it's super cute. And what kind of work count are you, is this going to be? I'm interested in, so is it mm. sort of, is eight to 11s, is that right? That sort of age group? Yes, I'd say that it's young middle grade yeah. and I th- I think that's 35,000 words. Okay, yeah. The final manuscript, yeah. And... A long series, do you think? Two books commissioned so far right. and um, just starting to have conversations about further titles. Oh, that's so exciting. Watch this space. So yeah, we should look out for that. Yes. Coming up soon. Well, that brings me to um, something else I really wanted to talk to you about, which is your own book, because you're an author as well. Yes, um, yes. The Little Book of Sewing. Yes. Which I must admit I haven't read yet, but yes. I really want to. Yeah. Um, so tell me about that. Yes, yeah, so that was published in April 2019 with Head of Zeus. And um, I, so I've been sew- sewing and doing dressmaking for nearly 10 years as a balance to the editing and writing because I find that as a creative, it's good to have more than one channel for your self-esteem to, to go down because... Mm-hmm. If, for example, you have a day of writing where you just think that you're the worst writer in the whole world, I think if you have a different creative pursuit that you can turn to, as I did with sewing, it really helps because you can say to yourself, okay, look, that chapter stinks, but I can sew myself a dress, (laughs) so I can't be that bad, can I? And then that gets you out of that slump Mm -hmm. and gives you something else to think about, a different type of creativity. 
so that then you can come back to your writing refreshed. Um, and so I'd become really interested in the emotional range of sewing for some of the reasons that I've just mentioned. So, yeah, the book is a re- each the book has seven chapters and that it's full of tips and hints, but also each chapter covers a different emotion. So there's a chapter on um, kindness, there's a chapter on confidence, a chapter on body image, because when you start sewing, you suddenly no longer have to fit some pre-selected, but also totally random sizing system from the high street. Um, It covers sexuality and how making your own clothes can really help your confidence um and it covers some of the highs and lows of sewing and it's 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 been a joy to write uh, well I, I have to read it soon it's a lot of the themes that i wanted threads to cover uh, particularly one of the characters one of the characters in threads was um called jenny was was born to steal a dress that's all she had to do for the plot <laughs> just steal a single dress and that was it and be nasty and she ended up not doing that i needed oh, to invent wow. another character to steal yeah. the dress because jenny turned into something else um, but Jenny was a, a normal-sized 14-year-old girl mm. in a Hollywood movie oh. and then and on the red carpet with mm. the, you know, her super glamorous, super skinny main actress yes, yes. and feeling massively, massively body conscious and yeah. constantly being squeezed into things that didn't fit her or suit yeah. her. And so, yes, when one of the other characters in the book, Crow, started hand-making clothes for Jenny, for Jenny's mm. body shape, for Jenny's mm. personality, yeah. based on, actually, Dior designs, which suited her oh, wow. shape much better than anything else, yes. um, that's when Jenny sort of really came alive as a, um, a sort of visual character. Yes. And um, I wanted to get across exactly what you were talking about. Yes. That, you know, fashion can be seen as very superficial mm. and intimidating. Mm. But what we're talking about, this idea of making your own clothes mm. and so on, is, is quite the opposite of that. Yeah. It's hugely empowering. Definitely. Oh, it's, it's it's massively empowering. I mean, I, I honestly think it's life-changing mm. for, for some people. Um, and, you know, I think we... Our tendency is to blame ourselves when we can't fit into a certain dress or, I don't know, there might be a pair of jeans that look great on everybody else and then you try them on and they look awful and, and you just think, oh, you know. And, and But then with dressmaking, you realise, you start to understand your body much more and all the kind of the idiosyncrasies of it and what makes you you and, mm. and you realise that every single body is unique, like hugely unique and there shouldn't be a value judgment on the uniqueness of your body. And it sounds really obvious yeah. to say, but it's one of those obvious things that you only start to learn once you pursue something like dressmaking. And uh, one of the questions that I, I ask when I go into school sometimes and I'm talking about threads is how many people have somebody in their family who sews? Because I got it from my grandmothers, one knitted and one yeah. smocked. Yeah. And oh, wow. I love it when the hands go up. I'm always really interested to see. And often it is from... Um, Immigrant communities, actually. Yes, exactly. Happens. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I found it fascinating. I, I live in um, in Walthamstow in, in north-east London where there's, there's a large Asian community. Mm. And, that, and so there are a lot of fabric stalls um, on the market. And that, that was my wake-up call to, you know what? There are a lot of women out there who the high street absolutely isn't catering to. And, of course, they're making their own clothes. Yeah, Wonderful. Yeah. I, I miss that. You talk about the markets. Um, I spent some of my childhood in Hong Kong mm. and there were tailors everywhere yeah. as well. So you get things made for you, but my mother made clothes anyway. But it was very easy to fi- buy bolts of fabric and, mm. and the joy of choosing them. Yeah. I was so excited. I remember I had a trouser suit that consisted of a horizontal striped kind of crop top and then vertical striped trousers. And this wow. was about 1976. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was so cool. Yeah. <laughs> So I think choosing fabric is a bit like starting a novel because it's all of that. You've got all the, it's all about the hope and and the potential and what this project could be. <laughs> and it's perfect. And it's, it's perfect. perfect. You haven't ruined it yet. Yes. <laughs> uh, do you make a lot of your own clothes? Do you I'm, have time? I I I would say that three quarters of my wardrobe is probably homemade now and I've had less time recently because I have just been so busy with speckled pan and um 
but I hope that I never stop sewing. It's so satisfying. I don't think you will. Do you knit as well and crochet? I do. And those I, do. I, I do knit, yeah. Somebody put catalogue through my door, I think it was last week, and we, we've just got rid of it, sadly. Uh, I I wish I hadn't. Um, but it's how it's for beginners like me, and it's how to knit yourself scarves and jumpers and things, but with really oversized wool. So mm. it looks like it's really fast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I'm, I'm into. Mm. Um, I think it might be called Wool and the Gang. Yes, yes I've heard of that. that yeah, and they do really funky wool and projects. Yeah. Yes, I'd, I'd love to, because I, I tried knitting when I was about 12 and I wasn't very good at it and I gave up completely. I'm an embroiderer, that's my oh, thing. Oh, I love embroidering. Um, so I, I used to do that and I used to do it while I was listening to radio plays and then mm. I could always, if I saw what I'd been embroidering, I could always tell myself the play, you know, that oh, real wow. association. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes. Yeah. My mum started embroidering because she's, she used to knit but actually her hands now have got too stiff to knit so yeah. But she started embroidering and she's doing some amazing work. And her hands aren't too stiff for that. That's no. extraordinary. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's, you're talking about you need to take a break from the writing and do something mm. else creative. And I was thinking, yes, I know I do that. What do I do? For me, it's turned into gardening. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm lucky that I've got just enough of a little patch of a garden in mm. the back. And it's complicated because it ne- no bit of it gets full sun. Mm. So it gets different types of shade. Mm. And it's taken me 20 years to realise I have to become a shade gardener. Yes, I didn't yes. know that was a thing until very recently. <laughs> um, but I find it, for exactly the same reason that you said, I find it essential when when the creativity in the writing isn't working because mm. the perfect thing is getting more imperfect with every yes. sentence, then if I can plant a bulb exactly. or mow yes. or do some topiary or something, yes. then it brings the creativity back. And Absolutely, it's, yeah. It's um, nice to keep that thread going. Yes, and I think any, any, any activity that's kind of quite meditative as well mm. is like walking my dog, you know, brushing my teeth. Sometimes these are the best times for having ideas, actually. When you've stepped away from the manuscript... You know, you might have a scene that's like, oh, I, I just can't make this work. I'm going to go mm. and do something else. And then I'll be walking the dog and this idea just like pops into your head. It's like you've allowed your subconscious to, I don't know, do what it needs to do. Yes, I, I completely agree. I, I read a book recently called Deep Work. And as always, I think it's Cal Newman, but I will check and put a proper link in. Um, I found it so, so helpful. Um he talks about not um, not working late into the night on your intellectual mm. projects mm. because you do need to give your brain a chance mm. to switch off and for your subconscious to solve any problems that are going Absolutely. on. And that's when sewing or gardening yeah. or walking the dog and, and yeah. those things can really help, yeah. I think. And I work much less now in the evenings to let that mm. happen. Yeah. Um, and then it's nice to come back to things fresh. The Absolutely. Next day, I, find. I think people think that they're not writing if they're not hammering at a keyboard. And it's. I think it's really important to step away um, and not, you know, just, yeah, just do all of those other things. And, and your mind is still working on that project. Yeah. I... Um, Andy Martin has written this great book, Reach Has Said Nothing, where he writes about Lee Child's writing process. Oh, yeah. Because he, he just had this idea one day that he was fascinated by the Jack Reacher books. Yeah. And he wanted to see how they were done. And, and, and Andy Martin is um, teaches at Cambridge. So he wrote to Lee Child, as you do, and said, can I watch you? And Lee Child wrote back, as you do, and said, yeah, sure, come to wow. New York. I'm about to start my new book. So it's oh. book number 20 that he was going to yeah. write. And I'm such a nerd, and Andy is such a nerd. He's just sitting, I'm, I'm sitting here. Uh, it's it's the eleventh of September, whatever the date is, and um, and Lee is opening up uh, the computer and he's switching it on, and it's Ariel Ten Point. Oh my god, this is so exciting! It's Ariel Ten Point, everybody. Um, I really loved it, but apparently he says um, he writes lying down on the sofa smoking <laughs> and sitting at the computer typing that's just typing but the writing is when he's wow. lying back and thinking about it all and letting oh, all the ideas right. settle yeah, yeah. and then you know him being him yes I think you know mm. just magic flows off his yes. fingers when he sits the <laughs> gosh um so yeah different ways of approaching things yep, I guess but yep. um that one works for him I must ask you while I've got you here what would your top two or three pieces of advice for pre-published authors be, do you think? Um, I will say this as somebody who's been guilty of making this mistake myself, but don't rush the process. Um, I think sometimes you're so keen to submit 
um, if submitting to an, an agent is, is what you're wanting to do, um, just give yourself and, and the novel time um, to get it as good as you can. Um, because, you know, I wrote an entire novel and sent it out far too quickly and it was too thin mm-hmm. and it will never see the light. And it's fine, you know, I've, I've, lear- I've learned a lot from writing that, but right. if I had my time over, I would have put much less time pressure on myself. Yeah. Um, what else? Um, be sane and <laughs> nice to deal with. Like people in publishing, they just want to, do, you know, honestly, half of this industry is that people just want to work with nice people. So try to be not a pushover but a, you know a pleasant reasonable person who gets back to emails in a timely manner that will help so much if people know that you're a good person to work with personally I wouldn't worry too much about building up social media profile I think that can come when it's ready to come if you get it's a book contract yeah um to be honest I'm really curious to know how many actual books are ever sold because somebody has a Twitter account. <laughs> um, yeah, even though there are other ways it can be really helpful in terms of the author community on Twitter yeah. and watching publishing. Um, and, okay, so this is some advice that I had recently, which is everybody thinks that what they need to crack is plot, but actually voice and knowing your main character is arguably more important and I think there's quite a lot in that actually I've been working on something that has an incredibly strong voice Mm. I can absolutely see this character I know what she does I know how she speaks and that's made a massive difference and I feel that I'm less worried about the plot because the voice is so strong it's like the plot will get cracked when the plot is ready to be cracked But you either have a strong voice or you don't. So actually any exercises that can help you play with voice or just give yourself time to really find out who your main character is and what the... And when I say voice, what I mean is the narrative voice, you know, Mm. the words on the page and how they're expressed. Um, So I hope that helps. (laughs) I'm glad you said that. Um, I, I do... One of my classes is on voice and... I do say exactly that it is, it's the one thing that an agent or an editor isn't going to try and fix for you because you've either Mm. got it or you haven't. They can't give you a voice. That's very true. Um, But if you've got it, then if the character needs a tweak, they might be able to help you with that. If the plot needs a tweak, they might be able to help you with that. Those are more technical things. Um, A voice is technical, but that's the thing that you have to work on behind the scenes really before you submit. Yeah. I mean, I describe it to my students um, when I was, putting this class together it was years ago and, and Terry Wogan had just died and mm. I was very interested in this huge outpouring of love mm. for him that happened and which I you know felt too and why was that and somebody had said you know he had three million listeners I think on mm. on his Radio 2 show um, and yet he managed to make everybody feel like they were the yeah. only one and um, he said you know he he is just just talking to you mm. in your kitchen mm. um, and I always felt it was like he was putting your arm around your yes. shoulder and putting his arm around your shoulder and saying come with me on this journey you're gonna gonna like this yeah, yeah, <laughs> you don't know where yeah. I'm gonna take you but yeah. you're, you're gonna like this and that that's what voice in children's books and other books should do yeah I mean even if it's a horror story and it, it's yes. a voice that scares you to death you just think this person knows what they're doing and I yes. don't know where they're going to take me, but I really want to go there with yes. them. Yes, I think that's such a good point. If you've got a really strong sense of voice the and the reader believes in it, then they trust you as an author mm. and, and they'll go pretty much anywhere with you. You're right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... And actually, I did an interesting exercise recently around voice where um, we had to just write a kind of two or three hundred words about a stranger that we spotted on the tube or the street and at the time we was set this exercise I thought oh, yeah okay I wasn't totally convinced by it as an exercise and actually it was really revelatory because oh, yeah. it it made quite a few people write in a way that was different to how they were writing their work in progress like the, yes. the voice became different and and often 
arguably stronger. So that I was pleasantly surprised by that writing exercise, and it it did make me think. Actually, yes, that it's you know if you're somebody who's trying on new voices, mm. or you know that could be a way of doing it. That's really interesting. I was listening to a great um, program on Radio Four recently about art schools. Mm. It had the word "smart" in the title. Again, I can put put a link in, um, and how art schools in the UK have developed over time, and how important they've been for our mm. creative culture. Now, I think it was in the sixties. There, there was I think, but probably at Goldsmiths, there was somebody who got his students to to create. Um, quizzes or questionnaires um to work out kind of your voice as an artist who, mm. who you are um and then once once they'd worked out what that was which was very early having started mm. the year um they then had to create a persona that was the opposite of that mm. and then for weeks and months afterwards i think they had to work in the opposite persona mm. um and they found it, well, certainly the person who was talking about it, found it hugely useful yeah. in understanding why he wanted to make up and what he wanted to do yes. with it. And as he was talking through it, I was thinking, this sounds terrible. Yeah. <laughs> this sounds really dangerous. But actually, he said it was the making of him. Yeah. So that's yeah, yeah, interesting exercise to yeah. do. I might try that with my students yeah. sometime. Yeah, I recommend And myself, it. actually. Yeah, <laughs> I recommend that. I have another question for you. Which is great to have you here, Caroline. <laughs> Given how how much of the publishing industry you've seen and so mm. on, is what do you think would be a good name for this podcast? It doesn't have one yet. It will do by the time you hear this, folks. Um, mm. But right now, talking to Karen, it doesn't. Um, I have various ones in mind. Mm. Um, shall I tell you some of them? Yeah, you go tell for me what it. you think. So I'm aiming it ideally at my. St- my students, so people who are really interested in writing books, possibly books for children, not necessarily, mm-hmm. um, and who want to know more about behind the scenes, yeah. um, what what authors do, how they think, how they work, what goes wrong, yeah. um, how editors think. So one of my ideas is to call it the dirty draft, okay. which is the well one of the things I tell my students is really important and my my idea of the dirty draft is what a lot of people call the vomit draft but just the yeah. idea you have to write something from start to finish yes before you can work on it yes and not spend two or three years on your work in progress um constantly going back to the beginning mm. so the dirty draft is one option mm-hmm. um the one the only rule I have for my students everything else is a guideline but the only rule is the child's eye view Mm-hmm. So that's another option. It could be the child's eye view. Mm-hmm. Um, and, oh, I did have another one. I can't think what it is now. But I am a bit, oh, sort of, a, writing for children already exists as a podcast, but mm. something that's kind of just very what mm. it says on the tin. Mm. But, yes, do you have any thoughts for me? Yes. So from what you've shared, I would say the Dirty Draft... I've got two issues with mm-hmm. this. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, I've suddenly gone into constructive feedback editorial. Okay, <laughs> let's <great>. collaborate. <laughs> the dirty draft, I think you only know what that means if you're already part of a writing community. Yeah. So I think if you want this podcast to appeal to somebody who may for the first time in their entire lives very tentatively be Googling something to find a resource they're probably not going to be Googling a dirty draft because they won't even know what that means. Mm -hmm. So it might not be as helpful for discovering your audience. I do also wonder if there's a slight danger of somebody typing dirty. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's not porn, damn. (laughs) The search engine and kind of getting people that maybe are not your target audience. Um, and then, sorry, could you remind me what the... Child's Eye View. Child's Eye View. I I think it's... I think it's nice. I'm just not sure it's snappy enough. Yeah. Um, I... I would... I, I mean, I would... I would go for something that is a bit... Does what it says on the tin. Mm. Because that is your best way of reaching your mar- your market... Um, you want, you know, you want a kind of a snappy elevator pitch type title, really, don't you? Yes. Getting your children's book published sounds a bit long, really. Yes. <laughs> you, well, yes, exactly. And I, w- I wonder if even it's it's no more than three words. Yeah. Um, I mean, this, you know, the, and these are the kind of the the 
really painful conversations. Sometimes, you know, we would be having in-house at publishers as summarising books and elevator pictures, you know, shout lines for the front covers. Yeah, um, even titles. Titles, oh my goodness, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so this is this is your title. And then um, I have found, so this is more from my blogging experience than my mm. publishing experience. With a lot of the sewing blogs that I follow, they all use play on words around, well, they don't all, but a lot of them will use some kind of, cookie play on words around sewing mm-hmm. so you know I'm making these up but she's so wonderful or so dainty or whatever yes. it is and because so many of these blogs were used were using similar um plays on words I if I used to find it really difficult to remember what the title of a blog was right because I'd be like who's that woman whose blog I really like and her blog is it's a play on words, but so are the other 50 blogs. <laughs> so I would be tempted yeah. not to do something like that. Um, so yours is Did You Make That? Yes. It? Which I love. Thank you. Because it takes you straight into that world. Yes. And with that, I very specifically and consciously didn't make it specific to sewing because mm-hmm. I thought, well, you know what? One day I might want to blog about other areas of creativity. So... I use the word make because that can apply to anything. Yeah, I'd love this to have the word make in the title. Because yes. of what we were saying before about the, the essential nature of creativity. Yes. And I love the way artists talk about making things in a, yes. and craftsmen in a very um a, a very real mm. way. It's mm. it's not just a sort of because I used to think, oh you know, like I, I don't know, I, I made a cake or something. Mm. But um that it's a part of their being to make. Yeah. So yeah, if I could get make into this somehow, I'd be very happy. But yeah, <laughs> I'll have a, a, doing I'll it, have yeah. a think, and if some ideas occurred to me, I'll let you know. Thank you. Well, <laughs> if you're listening to this now, you'll know what, what <laughs> of course we came yes. up with. Um, so on that note, I think that's that's it for now. I hope that um, I can get you back and talk to you again at some stage, Karen. It's been really lovely to have oh, this chat. Well, thank you so much. I, I am also a huge nerd when it comes to books and publishing and writing <laughs> and editing. So I've been in heaven and um, <laughs> hope it's been really useful to your listeners as well. And, and oh. good luck. It looks as though it's going to be an amazing podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Pre-Published. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love suggestions for future themes and guests too. You can also join us on Twitter at Pre-Pub Podcast and find me at my website, which is sophiabennett.com.